You're listening to a podcast of local news from the County of Suffolk in the United Kingdom. This is brought to you by the St. Edmundsbury News Talk Association, a UK registered charity. Hello and welcome to the 1,871st edition of St Edmundsbury News Talk for the 24th of March 2022. The editor of this edition is Claire Meller. The producer is Harvey Johnson and your readers are Chris Payne and Neil Keeley. We should also mention our processing teams who work hard behind the scenes to copy and dispatch this memory stick to you. We'll repeat any telephone numbers that are in this edition at the end of the memory stick. And we start, as always, with the headlines. Christmas Fair replaced by five days of festive events. Sunak urged cut fuel duty and energy bills. Regents plea ahead of Wednesday's mini-budget. Corrie McKeague's parents speak after inquest concludes. Ten-year-old George's amazing 30th century seal discovery could be worth thousands. A five-day series of festive events is set to be held in Bury St Edmunds instead of the town's annual Christmas fair. West Suffolk Council is no longer staging the four-day Christmas fair, which will be replaced by a linked set of events run by a new partnership from November the 17th. The fair, which attracts about 130,000 people to Berries and Edmonds, was cancelled over the last two years due to the COVID-19 pandemic. Reaction to the move has been mixed, and a Berry Free Press online poll found 69%, 456 votes, would prefer the Christmas fair, compared to 207 votes for the five festive days, 31%. Mark Cordell, Chief Executive of Our Bury St Edmunds Bid, which is in the partnership, urged people to wait for more details before making any judgment about the event, which he was confident would, quote, reflect very positively upon the town. The Christmas Fair, last held in 2019, was of huge benefit as a showcase for the town and for a great many businesses too but it is accepted that not all businesses and residents felt quite so positively about it, he said. Festivities will kick off on November 17th with the Our Bury St Edmunds Bid Christmas Lights event and will be followed by the St Edmunds Day Weekend Spectacle of Light from November the 17th to the 20th, St Edmunds Day. From November 23rd, there will be five festive days of events, which will include entertainment and bespoke-themed markets and activities. They are being planned, delivered and paid for by the new Christmas in Bury St Edmunds partnership and will complement the Abbey 1000 celebrations. It includes the Ark Shopping Centre, our Bury St Edmunds bid, Bury St Edmunds Town Council, St Edmundsbury Cathedral and West Suffolk Council. 
The partnership is working on the details of the event and more information will be released on the Christmas in Bury St Edmunds section of the Bury and Beyond website. Mr Cordell added, The partnership only met to discuss this opportunity a few weeks ago and have agreed to work together to deliver a new event. We felt it was important to let businesses, stallholders and the public know what has been planned and to get the dates of the event in their diaries, but it was just too early to outline our specific plans and ambitions at this stage, but this will follow in due course. It's an opportunity for us to reflect and have a reset. He noted that in 2019, 45% of those who attended the fair came from 10 local postcode areas. In 2019, the Christmas fair cost the council £277,793.02 to put on, and it made £271,900.72. In March 2020, the council budgeted 110000 for that year's fair, but it said when the pandemic hit, the authority focused on supporting businesses and communities, and its plans had to, to change to meet the three million plus impact. A spokesman said, We now look forward to delivering a partnership approach that will achieve the economic boost to the town centre that the fair did, and a great series of events for our local communities to enjoy, without some of the negative impact that the fair had particularly on our road network. Asked how much the council will contribute to the new events, a partnership spokesman said, We are looking into more of the specific details and we will then invest in these events and activities. The partnership will review the success of the events for future years. Business leaders in the region have called for Rishi Sunak to slash fuel duty and utility bills in his mini-budget. The Chancellor will unveil his spring statement in the House of Commons with inflation expected to reach 8% and many families struggling as prices soar on the petrol forecourt and in the supermarket. Reverend Nick Stutchfield, Chairman of Suffolk Coastal Debt Centre, said utility bills and the cost of food were the two biggest burdens for many people in the county. Paul Simon of Suffolk Chamber of Commerce said businesses in the county were experiencing real pain and called for a radical package of economic measures. Meanwhile, one of the region's major shipping firms has called for a cut in fuel duty. The Chancellor was unveiling his spring statement in the House of Commons with inflation expected to reach 8% and many families struggling as prices soar on the petrol forecourt and in the supermarket. Excuse me, but this is, piece is being um, um, written twice, actually. I will go on. He said it's difficult for the Chancellor to legislate for a reduction in the price of food, but he has got levers about utility bills, and pretty much everybody has to pay those. Gas and electric bills have risen by catastrophic, catastrophic proportions and are very likely will do again in October. Anything that means less drain on the finances of those in dire need is a good thing and utility costs are probably the most significant costs that the government could do something about. Paul Simon, Head of Public Affairs and Strategic Communications at Suffolk Chamber of Commerce said, 
businesses in the county are experiencing real pain and called for a radical package of economic measures. He said, with companies facing unprecedented inflationary measures on their cash flow and investment plans, we are urging Rishi Sunak to deliver a pro-business programme, focusing on the loosening of some current fiscal policies. This should include the government using its financial headroom to delay the increase in employer um, NI contributions, a year-long package of tax reductions on fuel and energy bills, and the introduction of a temporary energy cap for small and medium enterprises. In addition, the Chancellor must not be afraid to revisit the difficult but key longer-term issue of reforming the disruptive and illogical business rates system, which we wrongly shelved, in our opinion, in the autumn. A spokesman for Ipswich-based shipping firm Corey Brothers also called for the government to cut fuel duty, he said. Too many business costs are soaring and this will mean more costs will rise for the consumer and sooner. The government needs to get a better grip on this now and set out a clear plan for exactly how they intend to mitigate the energy cost rises. Corinne McCaig's parents have spoken after the conclusion of the inquest into the RAF gunner's death. Mr McCaig's father, Martin McCaig, has criticised, quote, conspiracy theorists who he said misled people following the inquest into the death of his son. Meanwhile, Nicola Urquhart, Corinne McCaig's mother, said she now 100% believes the conclusion of the inquest after questions were answered. Mr McCaig, who was based at RAF Honington, was 23 when he disappeared in the early hours of September 24, 2016, after a night out in Bury St Edmunds. An inquest into his death concluded that he climbed into a bin, which was then tipped into a waste lorry. Mr McCaig's father, Martin McCaig, said the facts are the same as they've always been but that some conspiracist theories have continued to mislead you. They've suggested Corey may have gone AWOL or got lost on his way home to his RAF base at RAF Honington. His son was last seen on CCTV at 3.25am, entering a service area shaped like a horseshoe behind the Greggs store. Mr McCaig said the inquest had forced the truth out into the open for everyone to see. He said, We knew the facts and evidence could unfortunately only mean one horrible conclusion, that Corrie climbed into the bin in the horseshoe area and tragically died in the waste disposal process. Waste firm Biffa initially told police that the weight of the bin was 11 kilograms, one stone 10 pounds, but it was later recorded as 111 kilograms, 18 stone, 3 pounds. Mr McCaig said the delay in establishing the correct bin weight meant we had much less chance of recovering my son Corrie's body. He described his son as a lovable rogue who loved to socialise and party. He could walk into a room and light it up, he said. Corrie was the atmosphere and could speak to anyone. I have lost everything as a result of losing him, and he is very much missed by all. He said that his son had known before he died that his girlfriend was pregnant. 
Mr McCaig thanked Suffolk Police for the amazing, untiring and exemplary work they did during the investigation into my son Corrie's death. He added, My hope is that today's decision shines a new light on the truth for everyone and Corrie can hopefully, finally, be left to rest in peace. Mrs Nicola Urquhart said, We did have a lot of things that at the time in the investigation they didn't make sense to us. We've always said the most obvious thing is that Corrie ended up in a bin and went to landfill. We had other questions, though, and until they could be answered, we couldn't get to that conclusion either. However, we've heard information in the inquest that we now completely believe in the verdict that the jury has given today, 100%. We've had a long conversation with the police with the senior investigating officers of this team, and it has been a really productive, genuinely helpful, lessons-learned conversation with them. As a family, we've now all walked out of there with a huge weight lifted off our shoulders. I want to trust the police. I'm in the police. I'm 21 years a sergeant in the police. My son's in the police as well. We want people to trust the police. It's not the investigation we didn't trust. It was the communication we had an issue with, and we've managed to resolve that now. We've been able to thank Suffolk Police for the amazing amount of work they've done in this investigation, and they've been able to make us feel better too. Mrs Yorkert also thanked every single person on the Find Corrie Facebook page, which was set up after his disappearance, adding... It's truly my heartfelt belief that without them, we'd never have the complete answers that we've got from the police in this investigation. She said her son's legacy is his five-year-old daughter, Ellie, who is the spit of her dad and is being brought up to know who he was with his humour, she said. That is his legacy. What more could you ask for? A 10-year-old boy who discovered a 13th century seal with his metal detector 10 minutes into a dig could see his find fetch up to £6,000 at auction. George Henderson, aged 10, was metal detecting with his dad Paul in Woodbridge while he came across a medieval priory seal, matrix dating back 800 years. George had gone with his dad to a charity dig to raise money for the air ambulance in Woodbridge last November. Within ten minutes of the event, buried around five inches in the ground, George found an important oval-shaped seal, dating back to the early 13th century. The seal's Latin inscription translate, translates to Seal of the Priory and Convent of Butley, of Adam Canon Regular. The artefact is connected to Butley Priory, a religious house for canons founded near Woodbridge in 1171. Adam served as its prior from 1219 to 1235, which makes the object around 800 years old. Due to its rarity and historical significance, the copper alloy object will be offered in Hansen's Auctioneer's Historica sale on March the 24th, with a guide price of between £4,000 and £6,000. The proceeds will be shared between the lucky finder and the farmer whose land it was discovered on. Paul, aged 45, who has, been a, who has been metal detecting for 20 years, said, The seal's historical importance, rather than the value, is what's important to both me and George. 
It's the most exciting find either of us have ever made. George has been metal detecting on and off since the age of five, and he doesn't always come out with me. He's found one or two interesting things over the years. He knew the seal was special when he dug it up, but he didn't know what it was. I did. I knew it was a, med was a medieval seal matrix. George was laid back about it at first, but as the day wore on, people kept asking to look at it, and he got more excited. Speaking of his find, ten-year-old George said, I'm happy I discovered it. Renowned metal detectorist Adam Staples said, This is an exceptional find for any metal detectorist to make, but to discover something like this when you're only ten is astounding. West Suffolk councillors have said that giant solar farm plans on the Suffolk-Cambridgeshire border are monstrous and inadequate, agreeing the authorities' response to object to the plans. Sunica has lodged proposals for a solar farm that spans 981 hectares of agricultural land for a 40-year lifespan to generate power exceeding 50 megawatts and become the largest solar farm in the UK. West Suffolk Council's Cabinet agreed its response to the consultation on Tuesday night, in which it highlighted the loss of a host of issues. Councillor leader John Griffiths said it was very clear this is inadequate, while Cabinet Member for Resources and Property Sarah Broughton said it was a monstrous size, which for communities facing the biggest impact of the proposals was ruining their lives. David Roach, Cabinet Member for Planning, said the authority is supportive of renewable energy schemes in general, but a number of key environmental impacts have been raised within the relevant representation as to the quality of the assessments undertaken by the applicant in respect of these impacts and the adequacy of the mitigation proposed to address adverse effects. He said that the impact on the roads was not addressed and for cyclists and pedestrians the impacts were underplayed. Councillor Roach said more tailored mitigation is required to address the impact on the landscape and said community benefits are limited. Plans were submitted to the Planning Inspectorate in November last year and accepted for consultation for an examination period this spring. That is expected to last six months, with a decision then being taken by the Business and Energy Secretary after that, as it is a nationally significant infrastructure project and therefore not one the Council can decide on. Suffolk County Council... Cambridgeshire County Council and East Cambridgeshire District Council are also feeding in their responses with all raising serious concerns. In its application, Sunica said the plans quote, represent an important opportunity to help meet the urgent national need for new renewable means of energy generation. Dates for the examination period are set to be announced in due course. The PM outlines nuclear hopes, but Sizewell objectors hit back. Prime Minister Boris Johnson has outlined his hopes of increasing the amount of UK electricity generated by nuclear power 
a potential boost for Sizewell C proposals, but alarming those against the plans. The PM met with nuclear industry bosses to discuss his aim to increase the amount of electricity generated by nuclear power to 25% of the total output within the UK. Currently, the country generates about 16% of its electricity from nuclear power and the government is planning to take a stake in a development company to help drive through the Sizewell C project with power company EDF sharing the costs. Further down the line, private sector investors, such as insurance providers, could be lured to invest, reducing the taxpayer contributions from the government and the funding from EDF. However, Alison Downs, a spokesperson for campaign group Stop Sizewell C, said she was disturbed about the acceleration proposal, believing local people could be stripped of the ability to oppose nuclear plants as planning and bureaucracy was evaded. She added, we are also concerned that industry bosses complain that the Environment Agency and Marine Management Organisation are slowing them down. The notion that local people might lose their ability to oppose projects is totally anti-democratic and detailed scrutiny by government agencies is critical to ensure essential safeguards such as a site not flooding. If Sizewell C were to be completed by 2035, it would have been over 22 years in the making. The eight years of consultation and planning were due to EDF's lack of commitment, pausing work on the project several times. Even so, the result was an incomplete application, which underwent 22 changes during the formal examination, and the Secretary of State is still asking essential questions now. However, a Sizewell C spokesman said, local communities contributed to the plans for Sizewell C throughout the consultation period. Changes were made, such as an increase in proposed deliveries by sea and rail, and a reduction in the number of HGVs on roads as a direct result of feedback. We are committed to ensuring that the benefits of Sizewell C will outweigh the impacts during the construction period. Those benefits will include thousands of well-paid local jobs, contracts for local businesses and a boost in training and skills for local communities. On Monday, Mr Johnson also met Sizewell B apprentice Poppy Abel, aged 21, from Framlingham. The former Thomas Mills High School pupil is completing a graduate apprenticeship in the engineering department. The head teacher of Abbott's Green Academy in Bury St Edmunds has thanked the community for filling 10 trolleys with Ukrainian donations. The Airfield Road schools classes are named after countries and include a Ukraine and a Russia. Ange Morrison said, our year five Russia class for International Women's Day wanted to put a spin on it and look at women and families in Ukraine. We organised a donation trolley and have just been overwhelmed. Mrs Morrison said one of the most heartwarming moments was when a father who was in the forces and is set to go away for four months came and emptied a backpack full of goods. She said, It has been a really humbling week and I am very proud of the children parents and staff whose donations will make a difference. 
Sudbury residents aged 75 and above are being urged to apply for gift tokens to keep a centuries-old village tradition alive. Sudbury's Ascension Day dates back to 1620, when the will of a draper named Martin Cole left instructions that said money from rents should be used to buy 50 shirts and smocks for the people of Sudbury every year. Today, overseen by Sudbury Municipal Charities, the annual ceremony sees people exchange vouchers for food or clothing. This year's celebration is taking place on May the 26th at Sudbury Town Hall. Chairman of the Sudbury Municipal Charities, Sam Hobson, said, It is traditions like this that make Sudbury special. There are not many towns that still celebrate a custom from 400 years ago. Applicants over the age of 75 are advised to apply in writing and write to Sudbury Municipal Charities at the Christopher Centre, 10 Gainsborough Street, CO10, 2EU, by April the 16th. Application forms can also be picked up at the Town Hall, with only one application per household allowed. West Suffolk Council has extended its deadline for Bury St Edmunds residents to have their say on options to improve the permit scheme and the availability of parking spaces in the town's 12 parking zones. The survey, launched at the end of January, was due to close on March the 11th but has now been extended to Friday, April the 22nd. Many of the town's existing parking schemes are heavily oversubscribed, with the council warning that people buying a permit that they cannot guarantee them a parking space as it is unable to refuse genuine permit applications. The council appointed 2020 Consultancy to look independently at the issues around the existing resident parking zones in 2021, and from their findings... A series of options was created and residents are now being asked for their views on these before West Suffolk Council decides what to do next. A man has donated a 1989 classic sports car to a Suffolk motoring business to raffle in aid of Ukraine. Jareth Joyce has donated a TVR S2 2.9 back to Bridge Classic Cars, based in Woodbridge, after winning the vehicle from one of its raffles last year. All of the proceeds will be going to the Disaster Emergency Committee, which is a charity delivering humanitarian aid to Ukraine. So far, over £16,000 has been raised by raffle ticket sales. Mr Joyce said, I've had a very lucky life, and now I'd like to share my luck with those who need it most. Bridge Classic Cars said, with the ongoing situation in Ukraine, many people across the UK are finding ways as to support people affected by the situation, helping to relocate and rehouse those left homeless by the conflict, or aiding those who are trapped as the chaos swirls around them. Jareth Joyce is one of those people. Tickets for the raffle taking place on April the 28th cost £10. Most ward visiting is being suspended again at some Suffolk and North Essex hospitals as COVID cases continue to surge in the community. Hospitals run by the East Suffolk and North Essex NHS Foundation announced the changes which come into effect from today. 
The decision which has been made due to the increasing number of patients being treated with COVID-19 in the Trust's hospitals follows a rapid rise in the number of infections in the community. This will affect Colchester Hospital, Clacton Hospital and Fryatt Hospital Harwich, Ipswich Hospital, Alborough Hospital, Felixstowe Hospital and Bluebird Lodge in Ipswich. It comes soon after the Trust changed their visiting policy to allow more visitors onto their wards at the beginning of the month. Nick Hume, Chief Executive of the hospital, said, Making this decision so soon after we opened visiting further is disappointing for us all, but it goes to show how fast the virus is spreading again and that COVID-19 has not gone away. It's still very real for everyone working in our hospitals. Any decision to suspend visiting in our hospitals is carefully considered. It does not get any easier, and it's never a decision we take lightly, as we understand the impact he has had on patients and their families throughout the COVID-19 pandemic. We know the support of friends and family is key to helping a patient on the road to recovery, but our priority is to keep everyone safe in our hospitals. We will keep We will be keeping a very close eye on the situation and we will share any news on changes to our visiting policy as quickly as we can. Some exceptions will apply and more open visiting will remain in place for end-of-life care, those in formal caring roles who support someone with learning disabilities or severe dementia, for example, parents or carers of children, One parent or carer may visit a child in hospital. This includes staying overnight. A parent or carer may substitute each other. And in maternity, one birthing partner, this is being temporarily reduced from two, may attend the delivery of a baby and only that person may visit antenatal or postnatal wards between 8am and 8pm. Use our buildings for refugees of Ukraine. With the invasion of Ukraine by the Russian war machine, it has ignited people power in the countries on Ukraine border. If the United Kingdom was in the same situation, we would do the same. We are going to leave a bill for future generations from the coronavirus pandemic. Are we going to leave them a bill for this one too? We could let the government sort it out. Or do they need to create a situation to trigger a people power so it runs smoothly and keeps costs down? People are waiting. Barry St Edmunds has many buildings that could house people fleeing Ukraine. The empty school at the back of the Abbey Gardens is ideal. Things could change tomorrow. Or it could go on for the next five year, five to ten years. We have to play our part. We could start by forming a charity in Bury St Edmunds. So it is ready when it's needed. Availability of buildings that could be used, what would need to be done, companies who would take part, and find what the local people would bring in skills and hard work. There would be planning um, who came to this facility, so all problems could probably be solved. Doctor, nurses, carers and chefs. It would be its own community, a coffee shop, so the ones staying in houses in the surrounding area can meet their own people. This would be a benefit for them and who they live with. Places like this could start up around the country when it's required, 
the charity could start to ask for donations. If this was run well, and I put a thousand pounds into this, I would think this was money well spent, even if I had to borrow the money. Now, that letter was written by William Wicks by email. And my first letter comes from Malcolm Searle from Bury St Edmunds, headed, There's a need for us to change our ways. Of the atrocities presently being inflicted upon the people of Ukraine, it would do well to acknowledge that Western nations have been doing likewise to the peoples of Iraq, Afghanistan, Libya and Syria over the past 20 years. In fact, there has not been a day this century when Western-produced armaments have not been inflicting grief and murder somewhere in the world, usually on people of colour, in the name of perverse economic and political expediences. Our systems of government that allow the very worst of callous indifference to the sanctity of human life to be traits of administrative candidacy are broken. We should be ashamed that we seem incapable of anything better but allow ourselves to be drawn into nationalistic and inhumane jingoism that perpetuate war and suffering. There is a need to change our ways if the human race is to survive. Also, with reference to the International Panel's most recent report on climate change, adhering to the status quo is not an option. We don't have a choice of how we die, but there is a window of opportunity, albeit a short one, to decide how future generations may, at least, live. We have to get real. We have existential, life-threatening problems and hanging on to the decisions of an incompetence who, during a crisis, are more concerned with partying is not a good idea. Uh, my next letter is written by Peter Sturgeon and it says this is where the PM has made matters worse and he has sent a copy of this letter to Joe Churchill, a Member of Parliament for Bury. Boris Johnson has only added fuel to the flames and is now responsible towards soaring energy costs because he chose to ignore any attempt towards resolving the ongoing Ukraine-the-Bleak-Russia situation. The Ukraine administration has said it would accept neutrality rather than side with NATO or Russia, which could have led to a ceasefire at least if pursued by Boris Johnson. But instead, Boris Johnson has made matters worse every time he opens his mouth. Hopefully you will stand up and state such instead of doing nothing. My last letter is from Keith Turner from Horringer. A couple of points on Tim Passmore's opinion piece in Berry Free Press, March the 11th. His attempt to align the Ukrainian conflict with, quote, maintaining the rule of law is misplaced. A better chance of, quote, delivering for the future, as his article is titled, would be to invite his readers, in considering Vladimir Putin's appalling actions, <coughs> to recognise that Ukraine is part of Russian history, and eventual settlement will do so. And as for the new police and crime plan... He states that it, quote, renews our commitment to deal with the increasing prevalence of hidden crimes. If the prevalence is increasing, 
isn't something more than renewal of the commitment needed? Um, my last letter is from John Moore of Woolpit, and he says why this 93% village preset rise. I have just received my council tax statement for the year ahead, pretty much as expected, except our parish council has shoved up the village precept by an amazing 93%, and they have over 150,000 in reserves. What's going on? Are all the villages similarly afflicted? Now, this little article is headed Your Views. Business owners have given a mixed verdict on the move to replace Bury St Edmunds Christmas Fair with a series of festive events. Chloe Bourne, manager of Mix Cycles in St John Street, said, I'm very happy with anything around Christmas that supports St John Street. We definitely get a higher footfall over the fair weekend and we also found we got more sales after the fair as well from here and further afield. People using the train to get to the fair came up St John Street, saw the shop and then checked us out online later to buy something. We found bike sales went up significantly after the fair too. It did give us brand recognition in a way. Leslie Bancroft, owner of By the Light in Whiting Street, said it was disappointing, but it was good that something was coming to fill the festive gap. She said the fair was brilliant for us, our second best weekend of the year, so we were very supportive of it. On how the shop will plan to be open for the series of events, Leslie said we're not sure how it will work as yet, as we have only seen the outlines of it. But at the end of the day, having something in place like this is better than having nothing. A Christmas fair stall holder for the last few years, Catherine Cudby, who runs her Lily Crafts business, said she relied on the takings from the event to keep her business going over the winter months while there were no other events happening. She said having the fair running over the four consecutive days was excellent, as it meant we only had to set up and pack up once. It brought so many people into the town who would not otherwise visit and brought a lot of extra revenue to the shops too, many of which are struggling. I think it's a massive shame. Right, I'm now going to read you um, Chatterbox, which is a weekly sideways look at what's, what you've got taking to the keyboard on social media this week. Readers were tapping their keyboards after the news that HSBC would be closing branches, including Stowmarket, as part of a transformation to the HSBC network later this year. Michael Bragg was not impressed by the bank's plans, she said. Oh, Michelle Bragg, I beg your pardon, was not impressed by the bank's plans. She said, by complying with COVID, that's the thanks you get. Nina Oxford wanted to know... What about us loyal customers that rely on it as we don't do online banking and we can't travel to the other towns? Scott Baker's feeling was that the bank could be making a mistake. He said, another cost saving by HSBC. Lots of people cannot use online banking, but they are ignoring their customers' needs. They will lose customers due to stores closing. One person who seemed to be who seemed to not be too concerned about the move was Andrew Burt, who said, In the nicest way, the Stowmarket branch is awful. No money counting machine, 
nowhere to safely count cash, staff ask too many questions and are not very helpful. It's like going back in time. With Nigel Pod simply saying, this is, what, this is what happens when lots of people do online banking. Jokingly, John Smith said, obviously, they'll pass the cost savings on to us customers. Now, I have two what's on items. First one is called All at Sea. Enjoy some tales of the sea when the Sheringham shantymen come to Gregory's Church in Sudbury next month. The Sheringham shantymen were formed in 1990, having started singing some two years earlier as a group of lifeboat men and friends celebrating the 150th anniversary of the private sailing and pulling Sheringham lifeboat Augusta. Over the next 26 years, the group developed styles of performing songs of the sea and raised funds for charity. Although the group's members nowadays are from a variety of occupations, they have remained true to their roots and still maintain a very close connection with the RNLI and bought a D-class lifeboat for the RNLI at Wicklow in 2007 named the Sheringham Shantyman. They have travelled widely, performing on BBC's One Show, Country File and ITV's Aid in Britain, as well as for children in need. Since 1990, the group has completed more than 1,000 public performances, made three videos and recorded seven CDs. Catch their matinee performance in Sudbury on April the 2nd. And the other one is at the Apex in Bury. Lemn Sisse, that's L-E-M-N, strange name. Wednesday, the 4th of May at 7.30, tickets £20. My name is Why, a story of neglect and determination, misfortune and hope, cruelty and triumph, infused with all the lyricism and power you would expect from this well-loved poet. Right, now um, I have some short articles here. Um, first one is Price for Sugar Beet Announced. British Sugar has announced that all sugar beet contracts for the 22-23 crop year, regardless of contract length, will pay at least £27 a tonne. With growers currently exposed to significant cost inflation and the price of sugar also rising, the company says it's the right thing to do to reflect this in the amount it pays out. Dan Green, Agriculture Director of British Sugar, said, We are committed to strengthening collaborative relationships with our growers and identify opportunities for sugar beet to remain economically viable for everyone. We have worked closely with NFU Sugar to understand growers' likely cost for this year's sugar beet crop and, as a result, we believe we need to guarantee a price to all growers. The blanket payment will apply to all contracts linked to the crop that is about to be planted. For the growers who hold a contract that has a fixed price below the price um, British Sugar has said, it is unilaterally raising their price to £27 a tonne. Growers whose contracts feature a market bonus element will receive a guaranteed market bonus of £5.82 which gets their price to 70, 27 pounds a tonne, paid as the crop is delivered. The surplus 
beet price for the 22-23 crop will also pay at £27 a tonne. Now this is a feature headed Abbey 1000, a holy place for pilgrims. One direct way of creating an association between monarchy and the cult of a saint was for the king to visit that saint's burial place. And from Knut onwards, there became a steady flow of monarchs visiting Edmund's shrine. Edward the Confessor even walked the last mile barefoot to the shrine, confirming the importance of Edmund, although King John blotted his copybook in trying to scrounge back his mother Eleanor of Aquitaine's jewels, which she had donated to the abbey. Many of the medieval kings felt it was their royal duty to venerate the saint. Even the fabulous Wilton Diptych, Richard II's own portable personal devotion panel, has three saints on it, Edmund, Edward the Confessor and St John the Baptist. Bury St Edmund's continues to be a place for royalty to visit. Edward the Seventh in 1904, Queen Elizabeth II in 1961, her 2002 jubilee, and in 2009 presenting the Maundy money. So not for nothing is Suffolk called Sillig Suffolk, not a corruption of silly as put forward by Sun, but Sillig meaning holy. But why? Obviously because the connection with St Edmund and the importance of visiting pilgrims over the centuries. They brought incredible wealth in the 519 years of the Abbey's existence. But think on this. If the enormous Abbey church had not been despoiled, but kept intact, becoming a minster as per Westminster Abbey, then Bury St Edmunds would not be as it is today. It would be a metropolis, a city of enormous size. Well, it is not but that does not mean that modern-day pilgrims no longer need to appreciate what is here. Though their congregations may have fallen over the years, the two main churches associated with the Abbey, that of St James, the Cathedral, and St Mary's, our civic church, still welcome visitors of all faiths and even those without, as does the Catholic Church of St Edmund and the many non-conformist chapels and churches in the town. The growth of the latter after the dissolution may well have sounded the clarion call for different ways of worship. It was, after all, over 300 years before a new parish church, St John the Evangelist, was built in 1841. Perhaps the townspeople had fallen out of love with strict religion as practised by those who followed the Benedictine creed in earlier times? Question mark. Store has three months to find new site after lease talks break down. One of the best-known stores, st um, best stores Stowmarket Town Centre, could be gone within three months after talks about renewing its lease broke down. Baldwin's was set up nearly 12 years ago in the former co-op department store in the High Street. It was founded by Kevin Baldwin, who had been a man manager with the co-op and sells homewares and some clothing. There are three people employed at the store. Mr Baldwin said he had been told by his landlords that he had to be out in three months because they want to convert it into smaller shop units with flats above. 
but the success of Stowmarket Town Centre has posed a problem for him. There simply aren't any empty units in Stowmarket that would be suitable for us, so we may just have to shut up shop. There's the old Hughes store, but that doesn't appear to be on the market at the moment, and there's nothing else. Mr Baldwin said he understood the landlord's position. A few years ago, they took back half of the store and turned it into two smaller shops and flats, and I can see that brings in more for them. We have been talking to them for some time, but they wanted to put the rent up by 40%, and for us to commit to the shop for another five years, and in the current position, we can't do that, so we have to leave by the end of June. I can see their point, but it gives us a real problem. As well as the Stowe Market store, there are also Baldwin stores in the Sailmakers Centre in Ipswich and in some North Essex towns, but Stowe Market is the largest store. This won't affect the other shops, but it will be a big blow for our customers if we cannot find somewhere else in Stowe Market. We have about 4,500 members of our loyalty club, and a large number of them use the Stowe Market store. Mr Baldwin originally rented the buildings from the East of England Cooperative Society, but the freehold was sold to a local company many years ago. A celebrated lecture by the writer M.R. James on the Abbey of St Edmund is to be restaged for its 90th anniversary. On May the 26th, Robert Lloyd Parry will read the lecture at the Athenaeum in Bury St Edmunds. M.R. James is one of the best-known British authors of the 20th century. A Cambridge scholar, he was famed for his short ghost stories, but his interests also included medieval and Christian history. The Abbey Lecture was given by James at the Athenaeum on April 21, 1932, and served to summarise a lifetime of research into the Church. To mark its 90th anniversary, Mr Parry will be performing it in full. Mr Parry said, I first came to M.R. James through performing his peerless ghost stories, but over the years I've become increasingly interested in his scholarly work, and I'm delighted to have a chance to portray this less well-known side of his life. To be able to deliver the lecture in the same venue as James did himself adds to the thrill. The reading will last about 90 minutes and will start at 7pm. The lecture is part of a programme of events being planned to commemorate Abbey 1000, the 1000th anniversary of the Abbey of St Edmund's founding. The celebrations are being supported by grants from the National Lottery's Heritage Fund, Bury St Edmund's Town Council and West Suffolk Council. Corporate sponsors include Class UK, Green King and Treat. Now, my final article is about free-range eggs are off the Suffolk supermarket shelves as bird flu outbreak widens. The rising number of bird flu cases in Suffolk and across the country is now starting to affect everyone, not just those who keep poultry either commercially or at home. Free-range eggs have disappeared from supermarket shelves and tourist attractions such as zoos and farm parks have had to take steps to prevent visitors getting too near their birds. There has also been fresh advice to anyone who offers homes to rescue chickens. 
which are taken in by families after they are no longer required by commercial egg producers, that they should be kept away from birds they may already own. A spokeswoman for Suffolk County Council's Trading Standards Department said, you should follow the current, current avian influenza restrictions and ensure they are housed and biosecurity measures are followed. The help minimises the risk of the virus spreading. We would advise that if you offer a home to rescue chickens while the national avian flu lockdown is in place, these are housed separately from any birds that you already own. The latest outbreak was at Gressingham Foods at Debach near Wickham Market, where more than 80,000 ducks are being culled after the disease was found. The risk of humans catching avian flu is thought to be very low. The only person known to have tested positive for the disease in the current outbreak was retired Devon train, Devon train driver Alan Goslin, who kept ducks as pets in his home. He recovered without showing any symptoms. The government says there should be no risk to health from properly cooked poultry or eggs. We're coming to the end of this edition of St Edmundsbury News Talk. If you have any comments about the memory stick or difficulty playing it, please use the phone number on the pink sheet which you have been given or put a note in the pouch when you return the memory stick to us. We would like to acknowledge our appreciation to the Berry Free Press, Anglian, East Anglian Daily Times, Haverhill Echo and Newmarket Journal, from whose pages most of our items have been taken. News Talk will be back again next week. So until then, from Claire, Harvey, Chris and Neil, it's... Goodbye. 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 Podcast brought to you by the St. Edmundsbury News Talk Association. You can view more information about News Talk on our website at www.stedmundsburynewstalk.org.uk. The music in this podcast was provided under Creative Commons license by Scott Holmes. This podcast was created entirely by volunteers in our Bury St. Edmunds studio.